got your Bibles, would you turn with me please to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. If I haven't met you before, my name is uh, Jeremy. I'm one of the elders here at this church. And uh, it's my pleasure to bring a message from the Word to you this morning. We're continuing our series in follow, called Following Jesus When We Stumble. And what we're doing is we're looking at um, little character studies of, from the disciples who were the followers of Jesus, these 12 disciples that Jesus chose, um, that he was going to pass on uh, for them to continue this work that, that Jesus was presenting, this, this church, this kingdom work that was going to carry on there. But we see just before he's arrested, betrayed and arrested and goes to the cross, that he says, you're all going to fall away when the shepherd is struck. And we look at that and we go, oh, how can that be? How can it be that these group of, of, of men who had seen Jesus and all that was going on there, all the evidence that they, they saw, the miracles, the teaching, everything that had gone on before, how could it be that at that moment they fell away? And so we ask the question of, our, of ourselves, what is it? What is it that, that makes sure we watch our step, that makes sure that we don't stumble in the, in, in the sense that of what they did, and that when we do stumble, because we do, is that we're always returning to Jesus, always returning to him, knowing that he's always welcoming us and pulling us forward and taking us on to live the life that we should. Today we're looking at the, the character of Thomas, a fascinating character in it. He's always called what Thomas? Doubting Thomas. Poor guy. 2,000 years, that's the only adjective we use for him, right? But if we're honest... We're all doubting people. And there's a level that we should be, right? Here's an example. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But here's an example of a letter that you may have seen come from certain countries like Nigeria. They're called Nigerian scam letters because they actually, it probably looks like they originally started as physical letters sent from people in Nigeria and they always have some characteristics with them. There's a story. This is a, about a, a widow who um, the husband had died. He was uh, a diplomat, and he'd made a lot of money, and he put it in a special account, $7 million U.S. dollars. But she needs help because she's sick too, and she's dying, and there's all these family members that are hovering around, and they're going to do terrible things with their money. But she is a devoted Christian and uh, she wants this money to go, uh, it's important this money goes to widows and orphans. And all you need to do as a fellow devoted Christian is send her some contact details. And you can be included in this. King? Who's king? What a pick of doubters, right? So there's, there's a level of what we're going to refer to as a little bit of healthy kind of skepticism. That, that we should have. Otherwise, you will believe that gullible has been taken out of the dictionary and everything on the internet is true. So, so there's something that we, there's an appropriate kind of level of questioning that sits in a place. But in our cynical world that we live in today, it often moves into a place where we, we never actually believe anything. We never trust in places where we should. And so I want to just wrestle with some of those concepts this morning and not put 
Thomas down in a way, because I think we need to be wrestling with this and thinking about it. What is that we can learn from the story of Thomas that is helpful to us? In Jude, it says a little verse that says, um, be merciful to those who doubt. What a great little bit of advice in a community. Be merciful to those who doubt. Doubts are things that come up, that pop up. There should be a place where you're able to express some questions and doubts, but not so they stay in a place where they're always doubtful, but in a place where you can bring them out into the light and get into a place of what I'm going to call trust, which is where we're going to go with this message. I remember talking to a man at a conference once that I was speaking at, and I was chatting in a way to him. He came up to me afterwards, and um, he started asking me some questions. He had some um, he was uh, involved in science, but he was in a community that had uh, determined a particular way of understanding some things. And he said, I, I, you know, he asked me all these questions about, you know, age of the earth and how we understand Genesis. And, and we had a, a, a lovely conversation and we went back and forward and talked about some things. But I remember what he said to me at the end of our chat. He said, thank you for chatting. I can't ask these questions in my church. I thought that was disappointing. Like, uh, you know, I mean, it's, he, uh, we, he needed to move to a place, I think, of trust in some kind of sense with it. But he's not wrong for actually bringing it out and having that with him. Now, I want to, uh, let's, let's read the start of our, our passage here. We'll work our way through it and bring a few concepts to bear as we think about it. So the, the picture here is uh, Jesus has, uh, he's died, right? Um, we know that he's been resurrected. But we see um, Thomas misses it because he's, we'll see in a moment how he's not there when, when Jesus is presented. But I want you to remember that none of them thought that Jesus was going to be resurrected. Certainly none of the disciples, they're hovering away in a room. We honor the woman who go to the tomb, but they're going to the tomb with spices. Why? You go with spices because you're expecting to see a what? A dead body. And in the story immediately before this, it's, it's Mary, and she's talking to Jesus, and he think, she thinks it's the gardener, right? Because in their mind, they're not thinking that resurrection is possible. So we see all of this going on here. Let's read the start here. It says, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, or it might say Didymus in, um, in some of your translations here, was not with them when Jesus came. So that's referencing when Jesus came on the, the day he rose. And uh, this is a whole week later. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, it's pretty specific, I will never believe. It's interesting that where it says that he's called the twin. <clears throat> now, the, the easiest reading is saying, well, he must have been a twin. He must have had a twin brother. Um, I love the idea of twins. My father is an identical twin, and I grew up with twin stories all the time of things that they used to go, get up to. For example, when they were younger and they had a, a girlfriend each, they, they went to some youth group event, and they decided to change girlfriends for the night, right? You can imagine what happened, 
And you also know those girlfriends never became their wives. <laughs> but there's a little play on words here. Because it's not just talking about twin. And the twin in those days had a bit of a negative connotation kind of to it. And it's almost talking a little bit about this idea of double. Why does he keep saying twin, Didymus? Ah, and this idea a little bit there of this double-mindedness of Thomas. Thomas has popped up on a couple of occasions. We don't know a lot about Thomas leading up to this point, but he's referenced twice in John. The first one is when they're going to Jerusalem, they're finally going, you remember when they said Lazarus is sick, the message has been sent to Jesus, and Jesus delays, and then uh, eventually they start going, and, and, and Thomas, because he knows they're going to Jerusalem where Jesus is hated by the religious leaders, he goes, let's go with him so we can die with him, right? So Thomas was all in. He was prepared to die with Jesus. He's not some disciple hovering on the edge there. He's all in. The other place we see it is in John 14, and Jesus gives this beautiful picture about, you know, the Father's house, right? And he's going before us. He's preparing a place for us. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Thomas, in a beautiful bit of honesty, just says, well, I don't know, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way to get there? So I think it suggests a curiosity that sits there in Thomas, an honesty and a curiosity there that sits with him. But then he says this, he says, well, I like you guys, but I don't believe you. And when we say that we don't believe something, it's not that necessarily just straight that we don't believe something. It's just that we believe something else stronger. Right? So someone might come up to you and go, oh, um, Jeremy. Jeremy, has, uh, he's just bought a new car. And you would have no real reason to not believe that. It kind of makes some sense and stuff with it. Right? You haven't seen the car yet, but it's a reasonable thing to believe. Someone might say to you, Jeremy just won Lotto Powerball. He won $20 million. Now you might go, oh, well that might be a reason to get to know Jeremy a bit better. <laughs> but I wonder, I don't, well, I don't know. I don't know what he thinks about spending money on that sort of stuff. And even if I did, the mathematics of him winning that pretty pretty unrealistic aren't they not sure if i'll really believe that but just think for a second what the disciples are asking thomas to believe how many of you have seen someone die and be resurrected <laughs> it's in one sense where it's believing the impossible from a natural perspective it's asking to believe um, miraculous. So this level of proof here, I, I feel for Thomas in this space. And I suspect some of the other disciples would have said exactly the same thing with it. But I want to just explore the, the idea of doubt for a moment. And there's something that John Ortberg in his book um, did, which is helpful. I need three volunteers. Come on, Christina, you're always up. Two more. Come on, don't be shy. Um, come up here on the stage. Two more. Thanks, Rob. Okay, come over here, Christina. 
and Ken. Okay, can you hold that one up, Christina? Rob, you can hold that one. Then you come over on this side here, Ken. I want you to face that way. Because when we talk about um, doubting, he separates it off and says, um, doubt is kind of a generic sort of word. And he says, uh, splitting it up a little bit can be helpful. And so he thinks of it in three ways. The first one is someone who would, who would we call maybe skeptical. And the idea of skeptical is, well, I'm not sure, but I'm open, genuinely open. What is the evidence? Where, where would it take me if I really wrestled down into it and, and I'll follow where the evidence kind of leads and I'm actually open, genuinely open to seeing where it is? The second category, as he says, is cynic, a kind of across there. He says, yeah, I'm open. Let's chat about it. But then you talk about something, whatever that is, and you realize very quickly, I ain't particularly open, <laughs> right? We like to use this phrase, oh, yeah, I'm open. It's celebrated in our day, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I like to ask questions. There's nothing we can be certain of. But even in that, there's places where they're very certain of, of things, and so there's a, we can be cynical. We're actually closed-minded, closed off to the things that are going on. And then the third category, um, he says, is rebelliousness. And rebelliousness is a next stage on from kind of cynicism. And it's not even pretending you're kind of open. It is, it is directly against the things that are going on. Okay, thanks, team. Well done. Good work, Ken. Your back worked very well. Now, I want to suggest to you that I think here that Thomas is actually skeptical, using it in a, in a way, because he says, if I, I know he says, unless I, right? So he's putting something very high up on it, but he says, unless I, he's saying, if that is possible, we'll see in a moment what happens with the story. I think we've just got to be a little bit careful here in the places that we're talking about it. And this can happen, we see this in our world, which they say is very open, and we're becoming very, you know, a, a lot more open to all sorts of questions and things that are sort of going on. But in many ways, we're becoming more closed off in it. We're becoming very cynical about w whether there is even something called truth, and we're funny about it. But it can happen within the, the, the Christian kind of space. And then what um, is often referred to as the progressive Christian space is this idea, well, we can't, there's some things we can't be sure of. And then as we can't be sure of some things, we become less sure of a bigger things, way to things until we're unsure kind of about anything. And one of the proponents of this is going, this, well, one of the truest, most honest sentences of our lives is, wow, we don't really know. We can't really know. So you sit there without um, pursuing with it. And I think it can be a very unhelpful space. John Ortberg in this book, which I, I highly recommend, I just think this is a very good exploration of this whole space here. He says this, to choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. It doesn't take you something, you, you've got to start actually believing some things without necessarily the whole idea of complete certainty with it, 
You've got to get some sufficiency with it and then follow through with it with belief and trust. He uses an, exa- an analogy because you have to make choices on certain things. You have to make a choice about whether God exists or not. You have to make a choice as to whether the Bible is God's word to us, is his revelation to us. You have to make a decision whether Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and you can't see the Father without him. He says it's like, imagine you're in a a multi-story building, and you're up near the top of it, and it starts burning at the lower lower levels. And you go out, and you open the door, and you can't go down the stairwell. The elevators aren't working. And so you go out to the top there, and you stand on the, on the edge, and you look down below, and you see the firefighters there, and they're saying, jump down here, we'll catch you down here. Now you say, oh, well, you can't really know whether, you know, I can rely on that. A non-choice is still a choice. So you have to get to a place where you go, I, I can't just sit on a fence here with something. I have to make a decision with it. Right, let's see what Thomas did. Now Thomas, uh, oh, <clears throat> next one. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. So he's gone eight days, right, with his disciples probably saying some things to him. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, which is pretty awesome, and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, I think it's interesting in here, Jesus is going to make a comment in a second about Thomas and his lack of belief. But I want you to notice here that he doesn't come in here and go, Thomas, you're an idiot, right? You should have known all of the things that I told you. I don't know. He goes, Thomas, come here. Have a look. Can you see? It's me. And do you notice what's still there on Jesus' resurrected body? The nail scars, the hole in his side. He said, ah, now you can see. Now you can see. And I think this is one of the most, some people say this is the um, most personal, extraordinary declaration by somebody about Jesus. It's, it's, it's similar to when Peter says, you know, he, Jesus says, well, who do, who do you say that I am? He says, well, you are the Christ, right? He, he's just making a, a declaration of who he is. But do you notice what's different with Thomas after he receives this? He says, my Lord and my God. So he's not just going, I now know who you are. He says, it's the relational sense of I, I trust you. You are the personal one of whom I need to put my trust in. 
And so you can hover around in your Christian faith and you can know all the intellectual things about God. You can quote all sorts of kind of Bible verses, but there's a shift that has to take place at some moment in your life where he becomes your Lord, your God, your Savior, your place of trust and hope. And Thomas needed that extra bit of evidence for him to be able to shift over into that place. But I think when Jesus says here in this next bit where he says to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And what I think he's saying here is this, is all relationship to a, to a very large degree is built on the idea of trust. I remember working with a lady who was from a particular European country who may or may not have an issue with trusting people. And I worked with her, and she just would never believe me about stuff, right? I always had to prove things to her over and over and over again. I remember sitting at a desk one day, and um, we were talking about something that I'd observed and things, and you always write things down in the diary, and she didn't believe I'd written it down. And I remember her pushing the diary across. She said, show me, right? She needed certainty in that place. But I don't think it takes a lot for you guys to imagine. We didn't have a great relationship at that stage. If you, if you desire certainty in a place of relationship, you don't have a lot of places where you're actually trusting, is it? Now, it's not based on no evidence. This is not what it's saying. It's not, he's not saying there, well, there's, there's nothing, there's no evidence there at all. You should just kind of just, just have a place of kind of trust. Thomas had seen, he'd heard, he'd observed all that Jesus has done. Now he gets this extra kind of one here, and he goes, Jesus is like saying, Thomas, if we're going to continue on this relationship here, what are, you, are you going to start trusting me? Are you? And, and how this works out in our thing is, like I still have a bunch of questions for God when I get there. Like, like one of them would be in the place of suffering. I've, I've got a kind of answer that I find reasonable and works for me. It works perfectly fine when I stub my toe. But it's harder for me when I hear stories about, about kids trapped in slavery, right? I, I still have questions. That say, but, but Jesus is saying, will you trust me? And if I have to go, no, well, Jesus, I'll trust you when you give me all the answers in that space. Then I'm, I'm questioning his trust. I'm questioning his promises. And there's got to be a place at that moment where he goes, do you only believe me because you've seen some stuff around? Or do you get to that place where you go, ah, oh, I trust Jesus. That's the place that he is moving us to. And it's very interesting, this is the verse that comes immediately after this story. You may not have noticed the placement of this previously. You know the verse. He's saying, these are written, this gospel of John, but I would say he extends it out wider to the word of God. It's, this is given to you so that you may believe. This is sufficient, right? We've just had an apologetic conference here the last two days. We go and we find out that this, this book is reliable. It's, it's the, the New Testament historically is the most incredible document that we can trust, right? 
So we, and then we read and we read the stories and we realize this is people who actually saw eyewitness evidence of what is going on. We can trust in this. So we come here and we go, this is sufficient so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thomas, by the way, went on. We don't know this for definite, but it's pretty strong evidence that after this, and Jesus ascended, he got on a boat and he sailed across to India. There's a whole lot of stories in India of Thomas and uh, a number of converts from the Hindu faith became Christians and there's still a Christian community in the places that he went. There's some evidence that he even went over to China, right? He, he trusted in Jesus in this place and then it transformed his life in the way that he lived. And in closing, I just want to say three quick little things about the places where you have questions. The first one is this, please avoid cynicism and rebellion in your life. I think when you have a healthy skepticism and, and you have eyes that are willing to see, you will see God at work in our world and in your life. And there'll be confirmation all over the place. It's when we become cynical and say, God, where are you? That we get shut off from those things. But when we say, oh, God, can you show me where you're at? I'd love to see it. And you're really open to it. I believe that he honors that and we, and we see that in that place. The other one is stay in fellowship. You see, there's a difference between Judas here who went away and Thomas here who stayed around. And um, there was a Barna research thing where they looked at it and they found they said, what happens when you start, you know, doubts and have questions? And, and a significant number of people, they stop going to church, they stop reading their Bibles, and they stop praying. Don't do that. Just because you have significant questions, the place to find the answers is to stay. Ask other Christians where they got to. You'll be amazed how many others have had those exact same questions and come to a place. They just come to a place. It, sometimes it takes years but they come to a place where they go, I don't have all the answers. I don't have the certainty in some senses that I would like, but man, I still trust Jesus. I trust him. I trust him that one day in faith of what I can't see, one day I will know. One day I will know and all will be revealed and I will trust. I had a third one, but I've forgotten what it is. Healthy skepticism is not the opposite of faith. It exists within it. But what he's asking you to do is trust. The last analogy I want to give you is from John Ortberg's book. And it was uh, Henry Nowen, and he talked about a trapeze artist. And there's two players in a trapeze, right? High up in the thing, and they're swinging along. And one's a catcher, and one's a flyer. And uh, he watched them, and he chatted to them, and found out what was kind of going on. And he, when he was talking to one of the flyers one day, he just said, well, what is your role? What is it that you do? And he said, well, what I do is I swing back and forward in the thing, and then at some point at the right moment, I let go. 
And at that moment, they're suspended in mid-air, high above the ground, may or may not have a safety net under them, right? And they can't see anything. They're looking either way up in the sky or they're looking way on the ground, but they can't see the person who's going to catch them. And the thing is that they do is they're not the catcher. They don't grab. They put their arms out knowing they're going to be caught. And what he's saying with this analogy is that there's a place in a moment at, that you have to, we are the flyer. There's a point where you go, will I let go? I've got all these questions of what, but the questions are about, will I trust God? Will I trust that at the moment when I give myself over to him, will he catch me? And this tells us he will. Have you done that? And there's a sense that we do that when we come to our faith in Jesus Christ. I trust my life to him. There's a sense in which we continually do that. And he is the catcher who never lets us go. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of Thomas. Thank you for the example that it is to us, Lord, of we have a desire for certainty in our lives in many kind of ways, and, and we wish for it, but we know that that is not possible in the areas that we have questions around. But Lord, you have given us enough to know that you are trustworthy, that you came into our space in our rebellion and cynicism and desire to live our own way, and you said, no, I'm going to come into that space, live as a human being, die in my place on that cross for these people's sin so that they may have the freedom that they should have had all the way along. Father, in this room here, I know now there'll be plenty of people with loads of questions and doubts. I don't know what image um, sits with them at this moment, but Lord, would you meet them in that place knowing that whatever those questions are, that you are wanting to meet them in that place of doubt, you are merciful towards them. But Lord, you are calling them to trust. You are calling them to a place to say, I am trustworthy as your God. I have shown myself to be trustworthy in the past. I am trustworthy today. And I am worthy of your trust for the rest of your life and for eternity. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.